Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Please note that this week's episode is on the topic of human trafficking and a survivor's story, which also includes details of sexual assault. If you do not feel comfortable or do not have the capacity to consume this information, please feel free to skip this episode. We will catch you next week. But if you do have the ability to listen, I really encourage you to do so. My guest, Amanda Blackwood, shares incredibly vulnerable moments of her life and her survival story and is so inspiring. I really felt this conversation was so deeply impactful, and I am certain that you will too. Thank you so much for listening and being part of this community. Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? And on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Amanda Blackwood. Amanda's an accomplished artist and author, public speaker, podcast host, trauma recovery mentor, and a survivor of human trafficking. She's spoken on a multitude of stages, international summits, radio programs, and has published over a dozen books. In addition to that, she's launched two podcasts, one that focuses on interviewing authors of trauma and the other that discusses the long-term consequences of trauma and how to fight back for a better life. These are topics that I feel are incredibly important to discuss, and I am so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you so much, Nikki. I love you. I love your show. <laughs> I I really have been eager to have this conversation with you because what you're doing is shedding light on a topic that has a lot of stigma associated with it. And also I think a lot of misinformation surrounding it. So I'm hoping that through our conversation, you'll feel that you have an opportunity to kind of set the record straight for some people um, based on your experiences yourself, but also what you've learned in your process of healing and growing from the experiences that you've had. So, I mean, to dive right in, I guess, is is where we shall begin. <laughs> so can you share a little bit about just how you've come to the place that you're at now. I know we'll be working backwards from this, obviously, um, because when we first spoke, you shared how you had like a very pivotal moment where you realized your experiences that you'd had were actually human trafficking. It wasn't something that was like very distinct in your experience that you knew as it was going on. It was sort of in the aftermath that you were able to recognize what had happened. Right. And this is common among survivors of trafficking. And I didn't know that at the time either. So what we have been made to believe trafficking looks like is completely false. And all of these myths and all of these stereotypes surrounding trafficking left me in this confused haze of believing that what I'd been through was nothing more than a, a terrible domestic violence situation. And in 2018, a friend of mine had heard about an anti-trafficking conference that was happening in Denver, Colorado, which is where I live. They sent me the information and said, you need to go to this. And at the time I wasn't making very much money. I was really struggling just to kind of survive and pay the rent. And I said, I, I can't afford the ticket. It's $35. You know, I'd love to go. 
I'd love to go out there and help save the kids, save the children. And he told me, well, you don't have to worry about affording a ticket because here it is. He went and purchased a ticket online and he sent it to me right then and there. He said, you need to go to this. Do you think that he understood what you needed from that before you even understood what you needed from that? I believe he was listening to a little voice in the back of his mind. I don't think even he knew what all my life had encompassed. He knew I'd been through some bad stuff, but I had never gone into a lot of details, even with him. Mm -hmm. And when I went to this conference, I sat in the front row because I was all about save the children, save the kids front freaking row, man. I'm sitting there in my sparkly silver shirt and I'm just, I'm ready. And they had these people getting up on stage and talking and they had other survivors talking about what they'd been through. And then they had speakers who ran anti-trafficking organizations and an expert from the FBI who specialized in human trafficking, all taking their turns on the stage and talking about what human trafficking was and how that existed in their worlds, why they got involved with the fight. And as every single one of them were talking, I started to realize that their stories were so similar to my own. And when the FBI guy got up, he started talking about one of the things that I will always talk about. You cannot Google, you cannot Wikipedia, the definition for human trafficking, because those are fallible resources. You have to go to a dependable, reliable source, and that would be the Department of Homeland Security. And when he talked about what the definition of human trafficking was, my world absolutely shattered. I wasn't there to save the children. I was there to change my life. So can you share a little bit about what the correct definition of human trafficking is? Because I feel like if I have to hazard a guess, most of us that are listening aren't going to have the right definition. That is correct. Uh, because it has the word trafficking in it, we automatically think about traffic on the roads. We think about cars on the road. The definition of human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or commercial sex acts from another person. There is no mention of transportation. There's no mention of people under the age of 18. There's no mention of smuggling people. There's no mention of money. All of these different things that we have come to believe mean human trafficking, like human smuggling, this is a major problem. This is a huge issue, but it's not the same as human trafficking. These are two separate issues that a lot of times do overlap, but they need to be addressed separately and they need to be addressed now. And human trafficking is not always prostitution. Prostitution is not always human trafficking. And we have these these horrible misconceptions in our brain that trafficking only happens to little kids that are being snatched off the streets by greasy weirdos driving windowless vans when that's about one to two percent of all cases. The kidnapping scenario is a myth. It is a myth that is constantly perpetuated by people who are writing these stories and telling these narratives in movies who've never experienced it or done any proper research on it. They just know what other people have said, and they're going with the narrative that already exists rather than the truth. The truth is that most people that are trafficked are trafficked by people they already know and trust and love, and people with a sense of authority over their lives, like their own parents, their grandparents, aunts and uncles, boyfriends, girlfriends, landlords. Wow. 
So when you were having this moment of realization at this event, what was that like for you? At first it was, it was kind of this slow acceptance. I didn't want to accept that this is what I had gone through. I didn't want to think about what I had gone through for one thing and trying to equate that to this definition that I just heard was really a, a struggle for me. And it is for most survivors. You know, what we went through is terrible. We have uh, what's known as Swiss cheese brain afterward because trauma leaves these blackout spots where you can't remember because it's too traumatic for you to remember. You don't want to be forced to think about those things to be able to understand what you've been through has a name. But when mm -hmm. I finally figured out that it had a name, they opened up the, the floor to speak to questions for a panel of five speakers. And I had been sitting there all day at this point. And when they said, that, you know, raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question, I raised my hand and they brought the microphone over to me. And my question was going to be, I was still struggling at this point. This was 2018, 20, yeah, early 2018. My question was going to be, how long does it take for somebody who's been through this to have a normal life afterward? Because I was still struggling. I couldn't figure it out. And what I received in return, what I, what I said in return instead was, I'm a survivor and I need help. And it was the first time I'd ever said it in my life. And then I got my question out. And all five of them were completely silent for a moment. They had no idea what to say. And finally, one of them spoke up. She was the founder of an anti-trafficking organization out here. And she told me, it's different for everybody. And it always will be because trauma hits every single one of us differently. We react to it differently. We feel it differently. And it stays in our bodies differently. Mm. Yeah, well, I, that's such an important point too, Amanda. And thank you for opening up about that. It's it's interesting how we have, as you said, these preconceived notions of what something is. Human trafficking being a really great example of that. And, and thank you so much for sharing the correct definition of it. I think that's super important for us to acknowledge upfront so that we're going through the rest of this conversation with the appropriate context. And it's fascinating to me that this is such a prolific issue, such a damaging issue, because the the trauma that you're speaking of, I mean, it is for many people, I'm sure, unfathomable. And yet it happens so frequently. And I have to say, like when you say that somebody from the FBI is there, my initial thought whenever topics of human trafficking come up is like, how come nobody's running on this like politically as a platform and i don't want to like go veer too far off into the political sphere but it really kind of drives me insane when you know that so many people are being affected by this and it's still spoken about in such hushed tones that even people who are surviving it don't have the awareness that they're part of it I think a huge part of the reason that people aren't using this for a political platform is because they understand that um, it's going to cause a major division if they do. Aren't we already really fucking divided? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But this would be worse. It would absolutely make things worse because 
I mean, there's no political party over another that's more affected by human trafficking, and there's no political party that's more guilty than another when it so comes it would to force us to actually agree on something. Right. Exactly. And they can't do that. It's, <laughs> you know, if one person uses it, let's say a Democrat uses human trafficking as their political speaking platform, the Republican is going to do the exact same thing because they can. Because they won't compete. Right. It's not any kind of a competition for anything for anywhere. No, because it would, ju it would just actually help people. Um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to limit myself to, to that because I could go real far down that rabbit hole on how annoying that is at large um, <laughs> yes. and annoying being like the understatement of the year. But that's such a good point. Thank you. Thank you for saying that because you're, you're right. And, you know, when you're in an environment where you're coming to the realization that this has happened to you and being able to name it, like that's a big thing that I learned in therapy early on. One of my best friends who really allowed me to understand the benefits of therapy through her own experience had explained the idea of naming it to me early on. Like if you can put a definition effectively to the thing that you've experienced, then it can help you work through it more effectively. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> it, 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 it's like, it changes everything, right? Because now you can contextualize it and you can grasp the fact that it's something that in my mind, it's almost like it makes you feel like not as alone because your experience is so isolated to you and what's gone on in your life. But there's this broader experience that like that fits into that other people are going through as well. And like you said, everybody's experience is different. And the way that you process the trauma is different. The way your body holds that trauma is different. Um, so having prepared a bit for this conversation, you did not have... Um, I don't want to say that. Let me rephrase that. You had some experiences in your life that were very deeply traumatic um, with regard to sexual assault and abuse. And so can you share a little bit about how and whatever you're comfortable sharing, how you like understood those things in your life um, and, and those traumas that happened, but how there was still like a, a gap between those experiences and then your understanding of human trafficking. Does that question make sense? Yeah. Okay. It does. <laughs> so with what I experienced, everything that I experienced started pretty early on. I was four the first time I was molested. Um, that was my older brother. Uh, that was about the time that things started kind of going downhill in my family. Anyway, my father was physically um, abusive my mother was mentally and emotionally abusive the entire time I was growing up. So the molestation did happen when I was four. It stopped for a long time, but because I was starting to exhibit some personality disorders and, and changes from having survived some kind of a trauma, it was thought that there was something wrong with me. I can was I acting a, out in school. Hmm? Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Did you, did you ever express to anybody what happened? I mean, you were so young. I don't know if that you would have even had the words for it. I did not know how to say it. Um, I think the acting out was my way of trying mm -hmm. to tell somebody, but I was pretty sure that one of, so it happened a handful of times when I was four. And I'm pretty sure one of those times, my mother actually caught us and she was angry and she spanked me. 
so I had it in my head that this was my fault. And having started to act out in school later on, my mother kept on telling me that if there was a problem and it kept on involving me, that I was the common denominator. So it, it kind of reinforced to me that whatever was going on was my fault. Yeah, of course. Of so course. I was and- molested again at, at 12 by a stranger in a swimming pool at 13 by an uncle by marriage. He was married to my dad's sister. Again, at 15, by a stranger in a video store rental parking lot in the middle of the afternoon with lots of people around. This kept on happening over and over and over again. And I kept on thinking to myself, it's my fault. I've done something wrong. At 17, I was raped by somebody I thought was my best friend. I'd known him for years at that point. Again, I thought, it's my fault. For that one in particular, I was home alone and I invited him in to pick up some videos that he wanted to borrow. You know, back when videos were still on VHS tapes and large chunky things. And he came in and he took me to my bedroom and he raped me. And then he took the videos and I needed to get the videos back. So I had to remain friends with him. And I was friends with my rapist after that for quite a while till I left the state. Um, do you I just want to kind of hold space for what you just shared for a second? Um, that's so much to go through. And I appreciate, so deeply appreciate your vulnerability. You say it in a way that is very matter of fact. And I understand where that comes from because I've done this with my own trauma where it's like there were so many repeated events that were traumatic that you learned to speak about them kind of objectively to explain what happens. But I know that behind that, there, is, there are feelings, right? You can heal through so much, but it doesn't change the fact that those things that have happened are the reality of your life. And I'm grateful that you have the desire to open up and be as vulnerable as you're being to share that because as hard as it might be for some people to hear the the fact of the matter is is that this is not a one time situation a one person situation this is as you're advocating for like this is a very prolific pervasive problem in society and we have gotten to a place of comfort with turning a blind eye to the impact that it has on people who are abused assaulted and it's like it almost feels like it just fades into the background as part of everybody else's everyday life while survivors are required to just go about their day and live their life because if you stay stuck in the trauma then your life is it is going to fall apart but then at the same time you're trying to find space to heal through that and experience what you need to experience to get to the other side of it. And it's a really, really challenging dynamic to battle with. And my experiences with trauma are not the same, but I understand that battle of like, I need to still live my life. And also this really screwed up stuff happened to me and in my life. And if you don't do the work to somehow reconcile that, then you end up in this cycle of shame and and victimhood that is not productive. Um, and I think sometimes we need to go through a cycle 
or two of that to, to understand where we are. Um, right. it might not be the healthiest way to deal with it, but I think we just innately, like it happens. Um, and the fact that you have the ability to articulate that is just so, so admirable to me, Amanda. I, I just really need to say how much I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I got to say this, one of the things that really drives me crazy is when I hear people say hurt people, hurt people, because it couldn't be farther from the truth. Unhealed, angry people hurt people. We've all been hurt. We've all got wounds. We don't all use it as an excuse to do damage to others. Oh my gosh. I love you for saying that. That's perfect. A hundred percent agree with you. At some point we have to make the choice for ourselves. Forget everything else. You have to make the choice for yourself. And if you can make the choice for yourself, then you are. I, th I think what I've learned is like your ability to heal gives you so much more opportunity to have grace for yourself for the things that you didn't know, um, which I think takes away some of those feelings of anger and animosity. And the other thing is, is that, you know, something that is, is really challenging when you've been taken advantage of emotionally, physically, mentally, like forgiveness is something that is sometimes hard to come by. Like I went through stages of being like, I don't want to forgive this person. Fuck them. Right. Like they don't deserve my forgiveness. And it's like, they don't maybe, but you do like you deserve to be able to move forward from it. It doesn't forgive what they did. Like there are things that my ex did that I think about. I'm like, that's unforgivable. I'm never going to be like, that's okay that it happened. Right. Like forgiveness is not saying it's okay that it happened. Right. Forgiveness is not the same as a pardon. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're just dropping really great sound bites here. Let's keep going. <laughs> um, yeah. So can you share a little bit about your thoughts on that? Like just sort of how you're able to come to a place where you can speak about your experiences and, and from a place of really like knowledge that you have now and, and where you have come through on your healing journey? I think a lot of it happened because of the forgiveness part. You know, we have this, this confusion, just like we have a confusion with the definition of human trafficking. Now, if you and I were standing in an elevator and you accidentally stepped on my foot, you would say, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. And my response would be, that's okay. That's a pardon. That is telling somebody, I know you didn't mean to do that. You would never hurt me on purpose. There's nothing to forgive. You notice nothing to forgive because it's different from a pardon. You have been completely pardoned of anything and everything. Now, if somebody intentionally hurts you and does it repeatedly, they don't deserve any kind of a pardon. But the forgiveness is not about them. The forgiveness is about you. It's who you are and who you've grown to become. It is taking this anger that you're holding onto and letting that go, releasing that, because that's the only thing that it is serving to do otherwise is bind you to that person for life. Do you really want to be bound to the person who hurt you for the rest of your life? Or would you rather let that go? Forgiveness is so different from a pardon. And learning how to forgive, learning how to release that anger, and learning to recognize and understand that this person does not have any kind of hold over me anymore 
was how I started really learning how to talk. Now, without going through all of that, I was a doormat before I learned how to speak about it. Even after all of the abuse, I still allowed people to walk all over me and take advantage of me in different ways. But it was the last attack. It was hitting absolute rock bottom that made me change. And that came about in 2019 with a man who trafficked me when I was 31 years old. When I was 39, he made me famous on a pornography website by posting all these photos and videos of me being raped. And he linked them all to every bit of my social media that he could find. So people could find me and start stalking me, figure out where I lived, find my phone number. I was asked for my autograph one day in a grocery store. Not because of all the cool stuff that I did when I lived in LA. I was on Alias. I was on Will and Grace. I modeled for Harley Davidson. I did some really cool freaking stuff. This guy wanted my autograph because he saw me being raped and thought I was an actress. It destroyed me. So the lady that... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) I was going to... How did you find out? um, Like, I guess... Was it through seeing all these things come through on your social media that you were made aware of this or like, how did that come into your purview? That was kind of a start for me, but I had a good friend that was um, a pretty decent private investigator. And Mm -hmm. I said, I have this issue and I need to know why. And this friend of mine, he's been amazing. He went out and found it and he started finding these links and he compiled a list of links. And it wasn't just one or two pornography websites. It was dozens. This man that had trafficked me was still making money off of me. Oh my God. It's so grotesque. It's like, I don't understand what drives somebody to do that. It's all supply and demand. 85% of modern pornography is created using victims of human trafficking. 85%. That's huge. How can we know those statistics and not be putting a stop to it or even trying to put a stop to it in a meaningful way? A lot of it is happening overseas. A lot of these servers for these pornography websites are overseas. Plus these pornography websites are making boatloads of money. They don't care about it. If, If it means putting one person's welfare above their profit margin, they're not going to do it. I'm like physically enraged right now, Amanda. Like (laughs) I, as an empath, it is the most unimaginable thing to me because one person's well-being is what you should care about. I agree. But that was when I learned how to fight back. You know, and sometimes, sometimes we have to hit rock bottom to figure out where to find the shovel to dig our way out of a hole that somebody else has dug. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me more about that. What was that like? So the first thing I did when I found all this out was I reached out to the lady that had been on the speaker panel at that event. Mm. She ran an anti-trafficking organization out here in Colorado, and she paired me up with um, a therapist. And this poor lady, I traumatized her so bad. She was pretty new to the industry. I'm pretty sure she's left it forever now. So he paired me up with a second therapist. (laughs) 
Well, that's, I mean, that's like another very real thing, right? Um, I've had guests on who are therapists and one specifically who has started a group for trauma therapists to help each other cope with the vicarious trauma that you receive when you're on the other side of conversations when somebody's been through a lot. And I mean, right. I've had to fire away at like a lot of things happening at once that I've unloaded onto my therapist. And I am grateful every single day that, that like <laughs> there are people in the world that can can compartmentalize and process and work through that to help others. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd have been lost without that kind of help. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I don't know how a therapist, a trauma specific therapist can do it. If this is all day, every day. Oh, I legit have no idea. Like I love people so much. And I think about like, Oh, I had a friend ask me the other day, well, you're so great with people. You love connecting with people. Would you ever be a counselor? And I was like, no, (laughs) no, no, no. Because I, I value what people do in those roles so much, but I know that I would never be able to release the weight of it. I would never be able to compartmentalize it enough to function as a normal human being. I'm like, I want to talk to people who have stories to share and experiences that they want to have a platform for, but like, I don't have the ability to continue to revisit those things and come back week after week after week and client after client after client to be able to like adapt to that. Oh my gosh, I'd be curled in fetal position hundred percent of the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's actually why I became a trauma recovery mentor instead of a counselor or therapist or coach. Yeah. I can coach people through their traumas, through their trauma reactions yeah. by educating them and figuring out what those reactions are and figuring out what the root causes of them are yeah. without having to get into the traumatic end of their story. That's what counselors and therapists are there for. That's why these people have gone to school for a minimum of eight years. Yeah. They've got you. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. Like we can be, we can be like the best friend that's supporting you and giving you the the guidance and, and care that you need, but like let let the professionals stick to that. <laughs> yeah, stick with those guys. They're going to be better at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. So thank you for going on that detour with me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So the other thing that this anti-trafficking group did for me was they paired me up with another organization that pairs pro bono legal services with survivors of human trafficking specifically to be able to fight stuff like this. I was going to ask. Okay, great. <laughs> so, but every time one came down, two more went up. I was fighting an uphill battle. And people that has to be exhausting. Fighting. Oh my gosh, yes. And terrifying. Yeah, yes. Well, and it's so violating. Like the yeah. the act itself is just utterly violating. And then to have it be really just you basically got doxxed. Yeah. And it's like the amount of strength that you have to be able to navigate that is incredible. I like I just don't think so many of us, like we don't ever have to even think about that. It, it's not something you ever have to confront or even imagine. And you're, you're in the throes of that. And as you're saying, like you're going through this process, navigating it and you're like, okay, we got this done, but then it's like, oh, now it's over here. Like, so you're basically playing whack-a-mole trying to figure out how to like regain control of your life. Yeah. I, it got to be really scary there for a little while. And you know, it's kind of like exercising your muscles. You know, if you've never done a squat before in your life and you've lived your entire life sitting at a desk, you're going to struggle doing your first squat. But after a while, eventually, if you do them every single day and you practice it over and over, you can do 200 squats without even thinking about it while you're holding conversation with five different people. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's what it became. Yeah. And when I first started speaking out, I had a very quiet voice, but I was getting flooded. My social media was getting flooded by people that I didn't know asking me to show more. It was terrible. It was, it was humiliating. And that's when I said, you know what, if people are going to find out who I am and they're going to be finding me anyway, I'm not going to be hiding anymore. They're going to know why they're going to know who I am. They're going to know why they're finding me. And they're going to know that what they're seeing was not some actress pretending that was real and it's hurtful. And if you want to know more, I will out you. And I started tagging people. This person is more interested in rape. This person is more interested in X, Y, Z. People stopped. Wow. And then I started leaving information as to who this was that had done this to me, including reaching out to uh, his superiors. He was a police officer. They wrote back to me. They claimed they do a full investigation and they saw no um, clear signs of abuse. I still have the letter from them, but I didn't care. I'd done my part. I'd opened their eyes. I told them there was something wrong. And I guarantee whether they did or didn't do an investigation, they're looking at him now. They're looking at him sideways. They know he's done something. Yeah. And that made me feel a little bit better. Yeah. So the well, more I kept on talking about it, the less people were finding me because he was stopping, you know, putting stuff up there because he didn't want people finding him from this. They wanted people finding me from this. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm going to write my book. If people, people want to know the story, I'm going to share the whole story with them and I'm yeah. going to make money off of it. When it's your story to tell. Yeah, it is now. I took back every ounce of that power from him. It's incredible. I'm, I'm so proud of you for like going through that experience and having the tenacity that it takes to keep fighting it despite things really trying to work against you and somebody in law enforcement, like, you know, that, I mean, we all know basically as well as anybody that there's a layer of protection there in a lot of cases that most other people won't get. And that's not to say this is all people in law enforcement, you know, it's never all right. But it's honestly, it feels like yet another reason that it doesn't get addressed with the level of importance or scrutiny that it should because it's people protecting their own. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly it. And there was a lot of that. And there is in every country. And this is where part of the human trafficking thing gets confused in my particular case. The last time I was trafficked, I was 31 years old. I was not some underage child. So people under the age of 18 only make up one quarter of all victims, which means the majority are adults. But when I was trafficked that last time, I was in Scotland. And people think that that means that I was trafficked because I was in a foreign country, but that's not it at all. I had known that man for seven years. He asked me to marry him and I moved over there to be with him. That was a choice. That was not human smuggling, which is different from trafficking. I moved to Scotland to marry him and be with him for the rest of my life. It took him seven years to get me there and it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Is this the same person who released that 
tape. That's the one. Oh my God. I am not often rendered speechless. It's like, there are no words. How, like, the amount of betrayal that happens when you contextualize the story even further. Um, the entire thing's a betrayal, just to be clear. I'm not minimizing <laughs> that at all. But to your point about it's often people that a victim knows or somebody in their family or, um, you know, people that are in their close inner circle. And we often, I think, collectively as a society, I don't even want to say we, I think a lot of people, um, they minimize that because they are people in an inner circle when in reality, I feel like you should be maximizing that. You should be like, that is even more problematic that this is people that you know, like you're, you're kind of justifying it. Like, well, you were with this person. And so therefore this was voluntary or whatever it is. And it's like the level of psychological abuse that happens to enable all of these other scenarios to unfold, that stuff is so virtually invisible to people that it makes it so challenging to make the case like yeah. crystal clear because you can't explain the psychological abuse with tangible proof in a lot of ways. Right. Right. And we see these images of human trafficking that people are using on their websites and they're showing a child with a hand over the mouth or they're showing these chains or somebody's chained up in a room. The chains are up here, not on your wrist. They're in your mind. If we go back to that definition one more time, it's the use of force, fraud, or coercion. It's not about locking somebody up in a small room. I have known people that that's happened to, but it's the, it's the minority. The majority of victims of trafficking are still free to move about. They go where they like, they go where they want. And they are controlled to a degree. A lot of times they're given a limited cell phone and their social media is monitored by somebody else if they're allowed to have social media at all. And if they do get out and go, you know, in my case, I would walk down to the grocery store. I didn't have any friends. I wasn't really allowed to go and hang out with anybody except for his family and only under his supervision because he didn't want me telling them things that he didn't want them to know about who he was really. You know, you do get controlled. But where was I going to go? You know, I mean, in my case is a bit extreme. I was a, I was a victim of a police officer. Yeah. I couldn't go to law enforcement for help. Some of the guests that he would bring over were lawyers and judges and other police officers and random people he met in the grocery store. I never knew who any of them were. I knew that I was in danger from every one of them. They were men and women who abused me, who paid him for the opportunity to abuse me. So he was bringing people in. And so it wasn't just the activities that I don't even want to call them activities, like heinous acts that he was um, conducting. But so he would have other people come into your life and solicit payment for whatever it is that he would then allow to happen to you. Right. Right. Men and women, couples, singles, didn't matter. Whoever was the high bidder for the night. And it was a revolving door. So 
there were times when it was two, three, four, five different people in a night. And it was five, six, seven days a week. And during all of that, he had a 12-year-old daughter who was only with him every other weekend. And when she was there was when I finally got a break. I'm going to ask a question that I want to make sure does not come off um, the wrong way because I'm not um, like psychologically, I understand probably a bit about the, how, how you, it took a while to come forward and to recognize these things, but like on a human level, like how did you hold that? Like, how were you able to like keep functioning? Was it just like massive dissociation? It was a lot of that. Um, but there was also a lot of understanding that this is what my life had been for the first 20 something years of my life. And I knew that I had been through a lot of stuff and nothing had ever stopped me from surviving to the next day. But one of the most dangerous things that I did back then was I told myself, I've been through worse. I can get through this too. I hate it when we say that to ourselves. I cannot stand it when other people say it to me. I cannot stand to ever say it to anybody else. You've been through worse. You'll get through this. That doesn't mean we want to. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we necessarily have. I tried to get out of there pretty early on after the abuse started. I didn't have much money. I had a little over $2,000. And I had to con him into giving me back my passport and my debit card. So at this point, you're you're still in um, the UK. Yeah. Okay. And I tried to uh, tried to tell him that what I was going to do was go down to the bank and go get the money out so that we could go and spend it. When really, I jumped on a computer and bought myself the first flight out that I could afford. But I couldn't afford one right away. I was going to have to wait five days for a flight that I could afford out. So I bought the ticket. I had a little over $11 left in my bank after that. I didn't care. As long as I got back to the States, I could find somebody to stay with. I could find a job. I could get myself going again. I could get on my feet. I'd be fine. And I told myself that dangerous phrase, I've been through worse. I can make it through these next five days too. In reality, it was the worst experience that I had ever been through. The sport torture had started at that point. If you're not familiar with what sport torture is, it's where people torture you just because they think it's fun and they want to see what the results will be. I ended up with this kidney infection so severe that I was in the hospital when the flight left and it was a non-refundable flight. I lost everything. Do you feel like he was aware that you were, you were planning to leave? Not until afterward. Um, he basically beat it out of me one night. Wow. This is something I've never talked about. <laughs> if you're, if you're comfortable sharing it, please feel free, but also there's yeah. no, no obligation. So after the, the, after I was diagnosed with my kidney issue and I was sent back to the house with antibiotics and I was on bed rest for a couple of days, he was out the money, of course, so he was getting quite mad and frustrated and angry at me and he bullied me and beat me and, and forced me into submission until um, he said something about, I know you're planning to leave me anyway, so just come clean with it already. And I think what he believed was that I was going to run away and take my chances on the streets. When in reality, I had bought that ticket and I told him about the ticket and said, I want to go home. 
he said, you are home, you stupid bitch. And I started to lose hope. I, I'm, of course, of course you started to lose hope. Thank you again for your vulnerability. Like I just, there's a blanket statement for that, but there's also like something that I, you know, said to you before we started and that I care really deeply about with this show is that guests feel like they can share maybe parts of their stories that they haven't shared before. And so I really honor that and I really appreciate that. In those moments, you know, where, like you said, you started to lose hope. I think hope is something that I often, I mean, I held on to in my own, my own moments where I just, you know, you're kind of looking around and you're thinking like, this can't possibly be my life, right? It's like, th those are the moments when you feel like you're the most hopeless, at least for me, it was like, you kind of look around and you're like, I don't know whose life this is, but it's not mine. And I think that you, at least for me, I found hope because there was this part of me that really understood that, like that it wasn't my life to be living anymore. This was somebody else's shit and I was part of it. Is that something that helped you get to the other side and, and find the hope that you needed? You know, even though I was starting to lose hope at that point, it was never really lost. And sometimes I don't know what it is that really pulled me through. I remember there was one day when I tried to take my life all the way up until the very last moment I had hope because I kept on begging internally, crying, somebody, please see me. Somebody, please ask me what's wrong. Somebody, please talk to me. And that crying out, even from inside, shows me now that I had hope, even when I thought all hope was lost. I was on my train station, on my way to the train station, intent on committing suicide, begging somebody, please see me. Nobody could see me. Nobody would approach me. People had that same mindset in 2011 that they seem to have now of not my circus, not my monkeys. You see somebody that's having a bad day. You don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Are we afraid that that's going to rub off on us? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't understand it either. In fact, I think there are moments where like, I, I think about my sister telling me um, after we had lost my mom that she was in a gas station in her car crying and that like, somebody had come up and asked her if she was okay or if she needed anything. And it's those moments, right. That I think about, I'm like, there are people who, who see us and there are people who will step in and, and ask, um, even if there might be nothing that we can do. Right. right. Um, and so I really try to live from a place of recognition that sometimes I need that. And so if I see somebody else needing that, I want to be able to offer that. Yeah. So when, when you speak to that experience, like I, I know I, I felt that way in my own right with um, like, I would go to work every day and I'd have all these really crazy fucked up things happening in my life with my ex. And it's like, I would let like a little bit of it out, but it was like, there's all this other stuff happening and nobody knows. And I'm just trying to like get through my day and function. And it's like, you do, you start to feel like nobody sees you, you're not safe. Um, and to be able to get to the other side of that, it really does require um, it requires connection with other people to help us heal. And this is something that I 
care so deeply about. It's why I started this podcast, but it's, I even more so in the last couple of weeks, I've just been driving towards this as more of the mission is like, that is also part of what we struggle with, with loneliness, like whatever circumstances are creating the loneliness, whether it's abuse, whether it's self-doubt, whether it's any myriad of things that can cause us to feel like stuck in our own world. Um, and like, there's no hand to hold, there's no, you know, person to hold space for you. It's like, I just so desperately want people to hear and to know that like, you can ask for help. It isn't always easy. The circumstance that you were in, if you didn't know people, like I don't necessarily know where to begin with that. But like you've said from the beginning, there are resources. Like if you have the means to find it, like please look for it. And if there are people, like just one person that you can open up to, like find that person and allow yourself the opportunity to be vulnerable so that somebody else knows. Because like when you're only holding onto it yourself, like that for me is the most hopeless. That's, that's when you feel the most trapped in this part of your life. And again, it's part of your life. It's not your whole life, but when you're in it, it feels like that's everything. And that's all it will ever be. And like, you are such a great example, Amanda, of somebody who is, this is what you are doing right now is your life. Like, this is what you are doing and this is who you are and what strength and conviction that you have in that. And those experiences shaped this part of who you are, but it is so important that we don't allow those moments in our life as horrible as they are to be what we anchor on as like that core of, of this person that I am is only right. these experiences. Um, so that's sorry. That's my little like um, diatribe on that. But I, you know, I just, I really feel where you're coming from with that, like that sense of, of loneliness in that moment. We're just desperately needing somebody to see you. Yeah. And now there's, there's always something about finding that hope, about finding that person to talk to, about finding that sense of human connection. And sometimes you have to be really careful about who it is that you're telling your story, sure. story to. You know, for one thing, you have to be careful how you're telling your story because you don't want to further traumatize the other person. You don't know if they've been through something too. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So I, I towards the beginning of this year, I wrote a book um, called the growth from darkness is the first book in the series of four. And it's about the stages of trauma and they mirror the stages of grief. And there's a very good reason for that. When you go through trauma, the person that you were is gone and you have to grieve for them. That is a death. That part of you is gone forever. You are forever changed. You will now never be the person you would have been if that trauma had never existed. So you go through denial, bargaining, depression, anger, acceptance, and never necessarily in the order that they're written down yeah. in any webpage or any doctor's book ever. And you might revisit some of them, right? Right. You're going to bounce around that place like a rubber, rubber rubber ball in a, you know, concrete room. Yeah. Before you finally settle. When you finally settle and you finally find your acceptance, that's when you can finally start doing the hard work to get through it. And a lot of people want to skip some of these steps and they think that, you know, I'm there. I've already got it. I've, I'm, you know, I'm fine but they find themselves revisiting these places of hopelessness and darkness and pain. And I did this myself for many years. And I had a dear friend 
Um, he has since passed away. But in 2019, 2018, I sent him a text message one day and I told him, why can't anybody love me? Oh gosh, I miss him so much. He was such a good friend to me. And immediately, the man did not call people. He texted, he hated the phone about as much as I do. <laughs> and he called me and it wasn't just a normal phone call. It was FaceTime. He needed to see my face. He needed to know what was wrong. And when I answered, I was filled with tears. And he told me, I don't care what you're in the middle of. I don't care what's going on right now. You get in your car and you get here right now. I'll have a pint of chunky monkey waiting for you when you get here. <laughs> and I did. It was a 15, 20 minute drive to his house. And I went straight to his house and we sat down on the couch and he let me cry. And he was there for me. And he told me, I don't know what all you've been through because you've never told me all of it. I don't know that I want to know all of it. But I know that I'm not in love with you, but I do love you. We are dear friends. And I've been through stuff that you've helped me through. And I want to get you through this night. I don't care what it takes. And we sat there until 4.30 in the morning, both knowing that we had to work in the morning. We sat there until 4.30 in the morning, just talking. And that acknowledgement, that human connection, that knowing that one person out there in the world deeply cared about me enough to say something is what kept me going. His name was Mark Scopel, and he passed away on April 1st of last year. And I thought it was a bad joke at first. <laughs> he was always a joker. <laughs> I'm so he sorry. He died of pancreatic cancer. I'm so sorry that you experienced that loss. And I'm also so grateful that you had the relationship that you did with him, that he was able to show up for you in those moments. Those are the, the times when I think we, those are the things that I hold on to the most, you know, um, right before my mom passed away, I was when I had left the abusive situation that I was in and I was finally opening up to my parents about everything that had been happening. And the last time that I saw my mom in person was like two weeks before she passed and they had come down to visit me at my sister's where I was staying. And, you know, I said, like, can I just have one more hug? And, um, I said, you know, thanks for being here for me, mom. And I just like, I still, I, I remember like the rustle of her winter coat and just like the way that it felt to hug her and her just saying like, we're always here for you, Nick. Like, and so I understand, you know, that, profound sense of gratitude for like the people showing up when you need them the most and how heartbreaking it is to have a loss of those of someone who has been there for you in such a tremendous way especially when you felt so lost so I I empathize a great deal with like that feeling of the connection and the gratitude and 
the subsequent pain that comes when, when you know that that person's not on the other side of the phone anymore. That was tough, but I mean, he, he held on until he knew that I was uh, married and happy and living a good life. He waited. With everything that you've shared and you know, like you said, you have um, the first of of four books out, um, and you know you're you're advocating, you're creating space for the conversation, you're driving the conversation. It's it's so amazing to see. What is it that you feel, based on where you are now, has like really allowed you to get to, a, or I, I guess I'm about to make an assumption. Do you feel that you have a sense of peace that you've longed for? And if so, what, what do you think ultimately allowed you to get to that place? And I'm sure it was a variety of things if you, if you are in that place. Definitely a large variety. Um, the therapy definitely helped. My writing was a huge catalyst in this. My therapist towards the end of our sessions told me that she wanted me to try art. She wanted me to specifically try painting. I told her anytime I've ever tried to paint, it came out looking like a multicolored snowman laying on his side. I'm not <laughs> an artist. <laughs> she said, I want you to try anyway. And within three months, I had a sunset painting that was bought by the anti-trafficking organization and turned into prints. They sold the prints to be able to afford counseling and therapy for other survivors. And within five months, I had sold art internationally. One of my paintings was hung in a home for human trafficking survivors in Chicago, and the Chicago Tribune wrote an article about me. That happened the same month that my autobiography, autobiography was published, which was June 19th of 2021. And the very next month is when I met the man who's now my husband. And while all of this stuff led me down this road the biggest part of that for me was meeting him. And someday I'm going to show him this interview. <laughs> because, I mean, we're going through some stuff right now. You know, we have financial hardships. And I don't ever want him to think for a second that no matter what happens, I'm going to be by his side. Just like he was by mine. When we first met, he bought a copy of my autobiography and didn't tell me. And it wasn't because he was trying to keep it a secret. It was because he wanted to support me as an author. And then he read the whole thing, not because he was curious, but because he wanted to know me. And when he finished reading it, he told me that what really struck him was that if I could go through everything that I'd been through, and still have the capacity to love that he needed a lot more of that in his life. He was the biggest part of my recovery. And I think that's why Mark held on as long as he did. Mark passed away in April, but Kyle and I, our wedding was in January. It's so beautiful. And I, I really am a believer in divine timing. Um, my mom passed away in February, 2021. And I met my now wife in April, 2021. And 
there's no doubt in my mind, you know, that like the pieces came together as they needed to, because I thought I was going to go through the loss that I was experiencing with my mom and leaving this abusive situation, like just by myself. Like I didn't, you know, I was living in Seattle. My family's all on the East coast. Most of my friends weren't local. And, um, there, I should say most of my like close friends from growing up who, who knew me, um, more closely weren't local. And when I met my, my wife, Nicole, it was because she showed up and offered that supportive ear. We were talking as friends. There was no judgment. It was just, she held space for something that I needed somebody to hold space for. And I really think a big part of it was because she didn't know me. I felt like I could share things the way I wanted to share them. There was no preconceived notion about who I was or what had happened in my life. Um, she had listened to the first couple of seasons of the podcast, like pretty aggressively um, and said, you know, I just, I, honestly, Amanda, kind of similar to your husband buying your book is like, I just knew I wanted to know you. And I feel like when you have that type of love and support in your life, whether it's a partner, a family member, a friend, like those relationships are so transformative and it's never just one person either. Right. Like that for me is like, she is my rock. She is the person that like, I just, I, I didn't even know like such a beautiful soul could exist and could be so supportive. And it also allowed me to have such a greater appreciation for all the other people in my life who are supportive as well. And to understand how, like being able to open up to her more gave me a sense of peace with being able to open up to other people more. And that was something that was really also transformative. That was sort of a ripple effect of that relationship as well. Um, did you find that like in being able to open up more to your husband, that it gave you a little bit more peace and freedom to share your story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that happened in so many ways too. I mean, he encouraged me to speak up more. Yeah. Same. You know, I, he, I went to farmer's markets all summer last year to sell my books. I've got a total of 13 books out there now. Uh, I, you know, I've been like hammering it pretty hard and he went with me and sat in that hot, sweaty booth all day long, every Saturday of his summer. And he was out there looking nice in slacks and long sleeve shirts because he didn't want me to outdress him. I was wearing a dress because it was nice and cool, not because, you know, I wanted to look nice. <laughs> Fringe benefit. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he was there every single Saturday, every opportunity he had. He has encouraged me to do more public speaking. He has, you know, we're going through this financial stuff right now. And he keeps telling me it's not on you to get a job. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing you keep doing that. I've got this. I feel like we're, we're, um, our lives are very paralleled right now. <laughs> it's not super glamorous to dive into entrepreneurship, um, without a really solid foundation or following that you can just ride the wave. Right. So you're, I, I understand that challenge and, and that the tension that it can create in a relationship because we want to succeed and we want to have the stability and, I think especially coming from situations where like you've learned to rely on yourself, that it's sometimes really hard to allow other people to step in and do what they're even offering to do. You have to relinquish that control. Yes. And that control, we have a sense of need for control as a trauma response 
because everything when we were being abused was so completely out of our control. We have this thing in us that says, if you can control your life, if you can control your situations, if you can control everything around you, you won't get hurt again. And that's not the case at all. And the the illusion is that we have control. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We control maybe 10% of our life. Mm-hmm. nothing more than that. It's like sitting in the backseat of a car and hoping and expecting to not hit the potholes. Yeah. You're going to hit some potholes in life. That's just the way it is. You can't even really steer the car from the back seat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind of stuck there hanging out, but knowing that you only have that 10% control, you have to find creative and healthy ways to use it. For me, it was the writing. It was apparently art, which I didn't know. I knew how to paint, Which is amazing though. Like, I love that. I think that's such a good point to make for listeners, especially is like, try different things. Like there's no one way to heal. There's no one method that works for everybody. And if you feel like something's working great, follow that. But if you also want to augment that with other things or try different ways, like invite that in, because it's like, you have to give yourself space to explore, especially if you're leaving abusive situations. I mean, I remember my therapist saying to me, the hardest thing about leaving a narcissistic relationship is regaining your sense of self. Yes. And, and that allows you having a stronger sense of self allows you to feel curious and exploratory and want to go after different things because you're, you're living in such like a small sliver of what your life is actually like, what's actually possible for your life. And now you're sort of now green pastures. What do you want to do? It, it can be very overwhelming. So give yourself time, give yourself grace. That's so much easier said than done. I'm sure you, you've experienced that. It's like, but as you said in the beginning, it, it's sort of like with grief, you know, you're going to ebb and flow and you're going to have all these moments. But when you find the rhythm that works for you and the things that work for you and the people that can help you, it's so transformative that like you look back at those parts of your life and you're like, I as much as we were in it thinking, I can't believe this is my life. I also find myself looking back at it being like, I can't believe that was my life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I look back and it seems like such a distant memory. There's parts of it, obviously that are still um, sore, Yeah, but that's the way it's always going to be. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not the trauma that defines you. It's what you do with it that does. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like you've just set such a great example, Amanda, with the work that you're doing. But beyond that, because it's not just the, it's not just the tangible things that you're putting out, the books, the speaking engagements, things like that. It's the message that you're sending to help people understand that you are not alone and that it is also not a journey that you have to go on without support. You can find ways to navigate this through you know, like you said, different organizations or different people who can assist you. And it's one of the things that can be challenging is not feeling like we're a burden to people. We don't want to be a burden. We don't want to ask for help or we don't want to be judged. But I think for me, something that's so critical to say is that when we internalize that, we're exacerbating the problem. And so you might not be comfortable right away diving into the deep end and getting after certain conversations or or sharing certain things, but go at the pace that's comfortable for you, but don't hold on to it so tightly that like you stay, you know, debilitated by those experiences. And part of, I think, 
part of the reason that asking for help is so difficult is because it's a strength and not a weakness. Mm -hmm. When we learn how to ask for help is when we have the strength to learn how to let go of that sense of control. That takes a lot of power to be able to do that. But there's reasons that these organizations out there exist in the first place. And it's not because they think that people that have been through stuff are a burden. In most cases, it's because those people have already been through stuff similar themselves and they know what it's like and they want to help. It's okay to ask for that help. In 2011, when I got out of trafficking, the resources that I found later on, they probably existed, but it's not something that people really talked about yet. It mm. wasn't something human trafficking. I didn't know that it was human trafficking, but in 2011, it wasn't even something that was talked about yet. Yeah. I was just saying this about narcissistic abuse too and gaslighting. Like these weren't terms that we were using widely. Use right. the term narcissist and people saw it as like, oh, somebody's self-centered. They're egocentric. Like, no, there's a diagnosis that goes with the narcissist, um, you know, and right. And so you raise such a good point too, is that like our, our knowledge on these topics is increasing and allowing the visibility of conversations like this to grow and to be able to share your story with such a level of vulnerability and confidence, because I see it, I see your confidence and I see your strength and I see your resilience and I hear it in the way that you're opening up. And I'm just so incredibly grateful that you've taken the time to, to share your story, to share the mic with me and to be exactly who you are telling your story and taking your narrative or speaking to your narrative in a way that is guided by love and and rooted in hope for other people as well and healing and I just I I cannot say thank you enough I, I feel like this has just been such a beautifully vulnerable and immensely transformative conversation thank you so much Nikki I've it, it, in spite of the tears I have very much enjoyed our time together. Thank you. Okay. So as we're um, rounding out the conversation here, people can find out more about you and what you're doing at growthfromdarkness.com. So it's also the name of one of your books, correct? Right. The first book in the four book series. Okay. Awesome. And so you can go there to find out more about Amanda and what she's doing, speaking engagements and all of you said you published 13 books. So any books that you want to find, you can find there. Um, is there anywhere else on social media or anything you'd like people to follow you? So all of my social media links should be on the website, but probably the one I'm most active at is Facebook. And if I wasn't on Facebook as often as I am, I would probably have all four books in the four book series completed by now. Um, <laughs> but it's facebook.com slash Amanda Blackwood Survivor. Awesome. Amanda, I appreciate you so much. I'm so grateful for you sharing your story. And I just am glad that I was able to have the opportunity to be on the other side of this, because it is truly an honor to hear how you've held space for yourself on this journey and inspiring to just know that your voice is continuing to grow. Thank you, Nikki. I love you. That is all for this episode of Who the Fuck. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. 
Hi, I'm Lessa Gaudet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Electricast.